1: Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I am your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And with us is author and filmmaker and game designer Neil Halford. Welcome to the show. Good to have you back. Well, thank you very, very much. It, it's been a while, but
2: uh, I'm, I'm very happy to, to be back and, and talking with two of my favorite people.
0: Aww. Oh, that's nice. So but you are... have a special occasion coming up.
2: I do. Uh, I, I actually have I have a few different uh, special occasions coming up. Uh, but uh, this year is a kind of a big deal for me uh, because uh, 30 years ago, uh, I worked on a game called Betrayal at Krondor. Uh, Now why that might be of interest to your uh, particular audience is that I that these this was a game that was based on the works of Raymond D Feist who of course is a, a big major New York Times best-selling author of uh, the rift war cycle um, he's been in a lot of the news here recently because uh, you know I, I guess that with the success of Game of Thrones and some other stuff is that someone has purchased the rights to his uh, his books and so plans are out there to uh, turn them into a another big big tentpole uh, kind of fantasy series and so I don't know any any of the t- details of what's going on with that because uh, that's that's all Ray's camp and everything but mm-hmm. um, but uh, anyway so Crondor and all things Midkemia and the Rift War have been in the news and so um, um, when I was chatting with, with various different friends and fans they said well it's the 30th anniversary we do something special about it so what I decided to do is that I'm going to uh, go up to Eugene, Oregon, which is mm-hmm. where game company Dynamics was located. And uh, that's, those were the folks who, who created it. We were a subsidiary of another uh, game company you might have heard of called Sierra Online. Uh, and uh, so I'm going to go up there, and we're going to throw a big old party on June 23rd. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to the chance to... Uh, a handful of the original developers are uh, going to be joining us, and then I'm going to have some other uh, people who are fans and just friends of mine that are from that part of the country, and we're just going to get together and and have uh, a great evening at uh, McMinniman's North Bend um, there in in Eugene. And uh, I think that's going to be a lot of fun, because uh, McMiniman's is of an Oregon institution. If you're from the Pacific Northwest, that's just one of the big places that you go for food. And, and uh, they have microbreweries scattered sort of all over Oregon. And so a, a fantastic uh, evening that I'm, I'm really looking forward to.
1: Yeah, it sounds like Vegemite of <laughs> No, no. <laughs> I actually lived in Eugene when I was about five years old, so that's another, oh, that's really cool. no, another point of overlap between us.
0: They named it after so, you.
1: So so they, yeah, they named it after you? <laughs> You're no. Eugene, Oregon? <laughs> uh. no, no, they wouldn't name it after someone else named Gene. They wouldn't af- name it after me, Gene.
2: Well, well, mm. I, I, I just remembered yes, was name. Maybe it was named Eugene, or him Gene, or they Gene, something along those lines. Yeah, um, it's all on but, the genes. Um, so, so, it, so it didn't actually start off with some other name, and they just decided, well, you know, you were born there, so we need to rename the town. Uh, so, so are you actually Gene, or were you
0: a Eugene that gets called Gene? Uh, He's a Gregory Eugene that gets called Gene.
1: Yeah. Okay. I, just, okay, I was in film school when I was... Uh, I, no, I was n- not in film school. I was in film class mm-hmm. at my high school, which is weird enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had our final projects, and we were supposed to work with a crew to get the, the films mm-hmm. done. And my crew had three Gregories on it. And there were only five of us. And so we mm-hmm. decided to go by our middle names, which didn't help a lot because it left us with two Eugenes and an Allen.
0: Yeah, but you were the Trekkies, so... Yeah,
1: so I, I was the Trekkie, so I went by Gene and the other guy went by Eugene. And in my case, it's, it's been Gene ever since. It stuck.
2: Well, I, I have... Uh, my dad was a henry gene but he went by gene until my brother was born who then became gene mm-hmm. and neither of them was a eugene they were just a gene oh that's interesting <laughs> and then uh, i also go by my middle name i'm i'm william neal but i go by Neil because i had an uncle william who while i i liked my uncle william i just went In person, so I I became Neil, and so uh, though I still have handfuls of of my older relatives uh, who still insist on calling me Willie, or (laughs) Willie, or Willie Neil, and this is not something that goes over well with me. Right? Um, mm
0: Yeah my my ex my ex's family they were all named James, all of them. (laughs) <laughs> some including some of the girls there was Aunt Jimmy so, so did you have the sort of medieval I'm not thing kidding. And, and oh, so you've got you've got Jimmy the skinny
2: or Jimmy the elder and Jimmy the younger and
0: uh, yeah i think so uh, yeah
2: uh, but um um but yeah so, Jimmy so another p- point <laughs> of commonality is we have uh, there we have gene in common so. <laughs> um <clears throat> but um But anyhow. um, Getting back to uh, the actual story. (laughs) Yes, getting back to the actual story. So, So, Crondor.
0: Tell us about Crondor.
2: Crondor. So, uh, Crondor was uh, a really interesting little game. Because, again, uh, I was hired. Originally, the idea was um, the CEO of the company was a fellow by the name of Jeff Tunnell. And Jeff had sat down and he was reading the book uh, Silverthorn. Uh, which is either the second or third book in Feist, uh Trilogy, depending at what point you picked up the books, because it, the first book was Magician, was one book, but the publishers decided it was too fat, so they cut it in half <laughs> and called it Magician Master, and, or a Sprintess and a ma- Magician Master, and then there was Silverthorne, and then a Darkness at, at Sethnon. But anyhow, uh, uh, so Jeff Janell was reading Silverthorn, and he thought, wow, this is a really great fantasy story. So... I'm going to go to Ray Feist and license this book, and we'll adapt this. Uh, uh, we'll adapt this game at, or this book as a game. But Ray's had kind of a couple of reactions because you know Jeff was saying, "Well, we'll, we'll license the book, and you can maybe you can write the, the game for us." And Ray, being Ray, he said, "Well, first off, you can't afford me." Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, what you want to do is you want to license my universe and then you can do whatever you want to with all of that. Well, we fast forward a little bit uh, in time and my boss, uh, John Cutter and I had worked down at new world computing.
1: Mm-hmm. I remember um, new world. it was just down the street from, uh, actually not down the street, but it was, uh, uh, just a few miles away from dreamers guild. Yes. Which is and where I was working at the time
2: where you were working at the time. And we had, uh, Ah, uh, talent in common, and mm-hmm. who knew the him, the himsaths, uh, and so again, all these weird, you know, connections that we have, and so, uh, so anyway, so John Cutter and I and I were were had been working together at New World Computing. He got a job at Dynamics, and he was there while Jeff was reading reading this book, and they got the license for Midchemia. Uh, so. John called me up and said well I'd really like to have you come up and write this because John and I had really kind of made a, a kind of connection at New World and had a lot of trust and faith in each other in terms of uh, he was a fantastic designer and he was real big, a big fan of my writing and so I uh, got imported to Eugene, Oregon to help uh, make Betrayal at Crondor. So uh, my choice at the time was is that I said, Well, uh, I like, the, you know, uh, I like the idea of of playing in this universe, but my big my big concern is is that rather than take a book uh, and just turn it into a game, I think it would be far more interesting to create a new story set in the same universe. Because if the idea is, is I'm going to license somebody's universe uh, and create uh, a game in that universe. It's far less interesting to me if I already know, well, here's the plot of the book. Here are all the things that I have to do. And I'm basically just kind of following the events of the book. Uh, and I'm just going to do them, uh, replay them, Uh, that didn't seem terribly interesting to me. Uh, I just kind of felt like it's kind of a gyp unless you fundamentally change the book. So it's different. And at that point, why are you, quote-unquote, adapting it? <laughs> uh, because if it's, if it's different enough that, that the player is taking different uh, paths, I didn't feel like it would be engaging enough to the players. So my idea was, let's go wander off in, in the weeds and find a good spot to set a new story, and, and a new, we'll create a new game that's set somewhere in a timeline. And there was, between his... His the end of his first trilogy. Uh, there was the darkness at Cthulhuon. Was the end of that book, and he had written another book called uh, A Princess of the a Princess of the Blood, and there's a 20 year gap between the two. And I said, well, what if we just pick a point smack dab in between the two of them because there's a 20 year gap in the events between those two books? And I said, what if we set a new game right in the middle of that 20 year gap? Um. And it was inspired par- partially by the fact that there is a really large thread that Ray left hanging at the end of a, of a Darkness at on. And I said, you know, and, and at first I, we I consulted with Ray, and I said, Are you planning to do something about this dangling thread, or is that just something that wasn't on your radar thinking about doing anything uh, with? And as it happened, Ray said, no, I didn't have any plans to follow up on that. And I said, great, that will be the MacGuffin around which we build the game. Um, so that's sort of how we uh, we kind of plotted out uh, what it was going to be and, and what we're going to do with it, um, though. Ray, I, we were able to send questions to to Ray Feist uh, about uh, his storyline. For the most part, uh, John and I pretty much had the the reins to do pretty much whatever we wanted to because Ray was busy writing uh, the King's Buccaneer, which was the next book after uh, after Princes of the Blood. And he just didn't have a lot of time. And as something he he actually admitted later was he really thought whenever, we licensed his universe that we were just going to have some of his characters running around in the world and you'd see their names over their heads and say, okay, well there's a and there's Jimmy the hand. Uh, but it probably wouldn't really have that much to do with his world other than b- borrowing some names and some circumstances.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: He hadn't counted on me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, um, And something that that whenever I went into it, uh, of course, at the time, there were, let me see, the the, uh, four books uh, that were present from the Rift War uh, books. Uh, Then there was also uh, two of the books, whenever I got started, that he had written with Janny Wertz in the Empire series, which are parallel to the events that happen in in the Rift War books and all of those were available whenever I started the game and so I became fanatical about going in reading his his books because I I think I before I got done with the the production of Crondor, I think I'd read through all of his books at least four times um and taken just sets of notes on them, trying to find, uh, to help kind of create color for the world, uh, to find interesting, interesting storylines, uh, to kind of spin off from. Um, and uh, my, and the, the interesting thing was, is that other than having picked up Magician whenever I was a teenager, and, and in full disclosure, I actually threw it away because I read the first three pages of the book and the main character's name was Pug. Oh. And I said, I said, what a, what a horrible name for a protagonist. <laughs> and so I was so disgusted with it, I threw it away. Um, and so it wasn't until uh, uh, I got the, the contract that I, I even remember having started that book, the first book many years before, uh, actually gave it a, a thorough chance. Um, but I was... Well, the reason I was kind of crazy about this was not because I had been this hardcore fan of Rays before I came in the door, but instead <clears throat> because I was a fanatical Trekkie. Really? Um, yeah, and and so what the connection here is, is that, um, of course, I grew up as a hardcore fan of the original Star Trek series. Uh, I was, you know... Uh, still a, a little nugget when the original series came on television uh, and but of course uh, during the early 70s whenever the animated series came on I was old enough to be watching that uh, and then of course I got into the animated uh, uh, the, uh, the Star Trek logs and also all the Blish novelizations and then finally when I was in high school uh, the, um, they started showing Star Trek after the news
1: well this explains um, uh, this explains um uh your friendship with um Larry Neimechek yes who is uh popularly known as Dr Trek
2: as Dr Trek and yes cuz uh Larry and I both uh grew up in Oklahoma uh he's just a little bit older than I uh, I was but we became uh, m- uh, friends and co-fans uh, while we were ber- both in Star OKC, which was the Oklahoma City uh, kind of branch. Because for, for a long time, there were a several star uh, clubs, which were all Star Trek clubs that were scattered across the U.S. And and so yeah, Gene this- and
0: I, my Gene and I met at one of those, you know, Star okay, so, so there you go. Uh, another connection. It was the Star Trek uh, Association for Revival, and I suppose it was highly successful. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was enormously yeah. successful. But, uh, but Larry and I had
2: met uh, through that organization whenever I was in in college in, in um, Norman, Oklahoma. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, so again, I had been a Trekkie since since day one, uh, and uh, remember that around the time that they were doing the uh pocket is started doing the novelization so there, there was the first run of stuff that was uh, in the blish area era where we got spock must die and uh uh some of those titles but but after the motion picture came out uh, is whenever the license uh, for adaptations went to pocket mm-hmm. and they uh, they started publishing books and so there was a book and i I can't honestly know, remember for certain which title it was. But I remembered picking up this book, and it made references to Spock and Kirk
1: using ray guns. Oh, yeah. Um, Somebody did not do their homework.
2: Yeah, and and there were several other things about this book just said... This person has never, ever read or has never, ever even seen the show, let alone read any of the materials uh, about it. And I was outraged beyond belief that this is an officially licensed Star Trek product. This wasn't fanfic. This wasn't in a zine or anything like this. This was an official book and they got everything wrong.
1: And licensing didn't catch any of it.
2: And licensing didn't catch anything about it, or for or for whatever reason, this slipped through the cracks. Now, j- now, for the most part, they did a really good job. And and honestly, the the first handful of, of those novels that came out from Pocket, um, uh, uh the ones by Vonda McIntyre, uh, the Entropy Effect, which I still consider mm-hmm. one of the best uh, trick. Uh, you know sort of standalone novels out there was fantastic, uh, and so there were some really terrific books that came out of that uh, period and you know I, I have several friends that that actually are continue to do uh, terrific star trek novels but but for whatever reason, this particular book slipped through the cracks and i that stuck with me. For the rest of my life, or at least up to, up, up, up to now, that's something still stuck with me. So whenever it came to the point, whenever I was going to be, uh, whenever I was going to be adapting Ray Feist books, I said, I don't want any of his fans to have this experience. Mm hmm. You know, I, I want them, you know, so even though I am new to, to this universe and everything, I want this, everything about what we do with the game, I want it to sound, the characters to sound like his characters. I want, you know, all the facts as much as possible to stick to what has been established in the canon of his books. Now, there's also the, the issue in, uh, issue of canonicity of the larger role-playing game in which he said his books. <laughs> canonicity.
1: <laughs> um, it's a new word i like it
2: um but uh you know there had been a a a role-playing game upon which ray had uh there was a group down here called the thursday nighters that had created the world of mykemia and ray was a part of that group and ironically uh uh, so, so Ray had dis, had asked permission, can I write some stories set in this little duchy of Cridey way out that's kind of far away from everything, el- everything else, and also set in a period about a thousand years before the events of the role-playing setting that they had created. Um, but, of course, so now we're going to run across another point of connection between all of us. And again, here's how Cronder connects, uh, uh, connects us, is that um, there was a, one of the members of the Thursday Nighters was a fellow by the name of Dean Halford,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: uh, and uh, who was known uh, to folks in the SEA as Baron Talenkay, uh who, to the best of my knowledge, it was one of the longest-serving barons in all of, this, of the SEA.
0: You are correct, sir.
2: Um And so, uh, and so there's a whole, of course, the whole weird thing about Dean was I knew nothing about Dean. That's sort of a whole, (laughs) whole other story uh, about so I didn't know anything about Dean whenever I got started with this and didn't even know Dean whenever uh, we started all this. But Anyway,
0: and people uh, probably bring him up to you all the time now, especially in you know from the California gang.
2: Uh, yeah, well, when, whenever people hear hear the last name, and those who knew anything about about Dean or, or where he was from, they said, "Are you related to?" Him? I said, "Yes."
0: And, <laughs> yeah. I think that was our first conversation. In fact, and uh, you know,
2: and I'm and I'm I am so proud to have been related to Dean because uh, the sad thing about it was I just wish I'd had more of an opportunity to get to know him and spend time with him because uh, in some respects he is the relative albeit a distant relative but but he is the relative in my family that's probably the most like me that's named Holford um, but my, my wife insists we even look alike I can um, see
0: it I can see it yeah. um,
2: but uh, um, but anyhow Um, So all of that is a rather long digression of saying is the fact that I was I was bent on trying to make uh, the game as faithful as possible to not only to raise stories, but but to his voice Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Um, so that uh, that fans would feel like they're in a familiar space. And I, I have to say is one of the things I am proudest of is that. Of course, Ray's name is on the outside of the box, despite the fact that he didn't write a single word of it. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Well, then you better do uh, it, but still, right? Yeah.
2: Uh, aside from the fact that we borrowed some of his characters and some of the storylines are obviously inspired by stuff uh, that came from the novels, but when it actually came to the plot line of the game itself and uh, the, 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 any, all the dialogue and all that other stuff, that was all written primarily by me and some of the text was by John Cutter. Um... But I'm extraordinarily pr- uh, uh, proud of the fact is that for years, people thought Ray wrote that game. And considering the, the fact that at the time, I was a 24, 25-year-old kid uh, who nobody w- was known for absolutely nothing and getting my work mistaken for the work of a New York Times best-selling fantasy author, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can live with that. <laughs> I can live with that. Um, and so, and I'm, I'm still extraordinarily proud of that. And I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of the story that we recreated because fans, even knowing, you know, knowing the fact that it was not Ray and it was me, there were so many fans, they said, but, but you got everything right. This feels like the books. This feels like that universe. And so uh, I'm extraordinarily, uh, extraordinarily proud of that. And um, I, I, I think that, that this is also a little bit of a lesson of this is how a love of a fandom can actually be something positive even for other fandoms because I got handed the stewardship of a fandom of which I wasn't previously a member. Um, but but my, uh, having the respect for that canon, having a respect mm-hmm. for the things that Ray and that Jani had, had done with their books uh, really affected my approach to the game.
0: So what happens now?
2: So what happens now? Um, so, um, of course, we uh, the the party that we're going to have on the twenty third. Uh, we're we're kind of excited about all that, uh, everything that's going to happen there in Eugene. Uh, we're also planning an online event that will probably not be a live stream of the party itself. Uh, as much as, uh, you know, I, I kind of thought about it, but the problem is is that I don't know if that would be terribly entertaining for either us who are going to be there or the people watching because watching us sitting around talking with each other and eat food. It's
0: um, hard to make a party uh, meaningful as a as an online Yeah, I event. mean, I, I think... But you might yeah. want to record bits of it, some of well, the well, yeah, yeah, anecdotes... I
2: yeah, I think that's we're going to, we're going to definitely do that. Is we're going to record some of the scenes of of us sitting around and having a good time at the party, uh, you know. Uh, but otherwise, I would just pulling people away from talking with, with their friends and, and you know, talking with our colleagues and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I just didn't feel like that's really going to be that satisfying. Uh, so what we're going to do is probably do an event on Saturday afternoon, so the day after, uh, and it might be a Twitch stream. Uh, I know that uh, we have uh, Kilgore Trout, who is one of the major <coughs> streamers for uh, goodoldgames.com, so GOG. Uh, he has expressed an interest in doing something uh, special, possibly on that day. Uh, of course, we have Jen Cobb, who has been a major supporter and promoter. I mean, everything that's betrayal at Crondor thats pretty much anywhere and any of uh Jen Cobb runs most of those, uh, and so Jen Cobb is going to fly out from Florida to be with us. Um, And so we're going to have some kind of an online thing, probably on Saturday, still figuring out what the form of that is going to be.
0: Okay, so are we looking at a re-release of the game itself or a new Uh, version of it?
2: um, You know, that is something that I get asked
1: a lot. (laughs) Um, There have been so many versions of it in release, not all of them legal. <laughs> uh, well well the uh there are uh
2: there there were two sequels to the game well actually there's three sequels um there was a uh because there was a bunch of Sturman, drawing uh, that was going on at Dynamics at the time. We completed the first game. Uh, we started work on a sequel. Then they fired my boss, took the rest of my team, scattered them over the rest of the company, uh, and um, you know we'd cancelled the sequel then they came back a little, uh, a little bit while later while I'm going crazy because they said, well, we're not firing you and we're not laying you off, uh, but don't worry about it. We have something for you. So I spent about three months going crazy in a, alone on my own floor of, you know, a, a, on, of the building in one corner that was reser- had been reserved for our team. So I was all alone mm-hmm. in this section of the office, <laughs> bouncing off the walls between my whiteboards, trying to figure out how to save my job. I need to come up with another sequel. But but we had started production on a game called Thief of Dreams, which was would have been the official sequel to Betrayal at Crondor. Uh, we actually got far enough with it that I wrote out the, the, um, the had written out the storyline for what it was going to be, gave it to Ray Feist. Ray loved it. I personally think it would have been an even better game than Betrayal at Crondor was. Uh, Ray kind of told me at the time because we met at um, uh, at World uh, World Fantasy WorldCon in San Francisco um, to, to talk about it, and he said, "Well, Neil, if you don't make this as a game, I'm going to make this as a book," which he kinda did <laughs> later. <Ooh>. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, um, but anyway, so uh, so that was Thief of Dreams, and so unfortunately, we got I can't remember exactly, but it's maybe four or five months into the sequel before we got canceled. Uh, but again, that was just because of a lot of weird politics that were going on at Dynamics and within Sierra Online at the
1: time. Um, Sierra was, Online going through its own upheavals.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so then after I uh, after I left there, uh, after I left uh, Eugene and left Dynamics, uh, I, I got a phone call from... Ray Feist, And he had sold the license because he basically let them know that if, if they couldn't keep the license, if they weren't going to have John and, and me involved, uh, which was another huge sort of compliment that he really believed in what we'd done. But uh, so he took the license to seventh level, which at the time had only published a Monty Python trivia game. Oh, I remember that. Um and so they started production on Return to Crondor. And so John was uh, was aboard as a consultant. I was going to be writing story and and kind of consulting on the design for that one. Uh, that only lasted for about six months, or at least my relationship would only last for about six months because uh, that was. Uh, there was just a lot of craziness that was going on there, um, because uh, they didn't really understand what they were getting their hands on, um, and they were saying, you know, yeah, we're going to have this, this game out in, you know, I can't remember what it was, they said like 10 months or something, and we're saying, uh, you don't know, <laughs> <laughs> and they said, you don't even have an engine, you don't have a 3D engine. Um And so that, so return to Crondor. So, uh, unfortunately, I just I was knocking heads with him way too much, and so uh, by kind of a mutual uh, decision, we decided we weren't going to play with each other uh, on the sequel, Uh, and then that that game knocked around for almost four years and it, it passed for, between the hands of like two or three different companies before it finally got finished and was published by Sierra Online uh, as an official sequel. Um, in the meantime, there was also another game uh, that, that uh, D- Dynamics decided to produce uh, that was called Betrayal at Antara. Uh, now, it borrowed some of the look of the original game, though they dropped sort of our photo realistic look for some of our actors and they drew some stuff. And so a lot of people thought, okay, well that was a sequel to Krondor and said, well, no, not really. It uses the same engine and betrayal is in the name and it is a role playing game. Uh, but, uh, other than that, none of the same people were involved, um, and it just was a totally different thing. And so, I can't really comment on 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 how that all happened or, or who was involved because unfortunately it's just I, I was not involved with that at all. Um, it, it's sometimes treated as a sequel and even on GOG they tend to sell it as part of a Krondor package even though it nothing to do with Ray's universe. <laughs> nothing to do with those characters. Um, and so it's, it's a sequel in as much as it kind of looks and seems like a sequel. So Fast forward to... Uh, I want to say it was like four years ago. I may be off on that. So I began to be contacted by a, a gentleman uh, who lives in Eastern Europe, uh, a, a great fellow by the name of Damian, and who is what I would consider a mega fan of Betrayal of Crondor. And he said, I really want to make a new game that, you know, takes all of my favorite elements of Betrayal at Crondor and, you know, down to a similar look to the 3D and all this other stuff. And so he started building a brand new RPG uh, with this kind of retro kind of stuff. And uh, he, of course, he would absolutely love to have the license to, to raise universe and, and play uh, play in it and he is a major friend of mine and supporter of mine uh, a funny story is that last uh, uh, last year uh, Jane and I were in Europe uh, for uh, uh, because my wife is in her master's of art program uh, studying uh, Renaissance uh, Renaissance art. And so while we're in Italy, he says, uh, is there any chance that we could meet up while we were there? And I said, well, we're going to be in Venice. Uh, we're, gonna, we're taking a day trip away from, from the rest of the class to go up to Venice. And so he came from is it slovenia slovenia i think Mm -hmm. slovenia is the one that's closest to italy so he came from where he lived in slovenia it was only like a two and a half hour train trip for him so he came from slovenia we met in venice and spent the day going through the doge's palace and all this wonderful stuff uh he he was on a field trip because he was also taking pictures of everything for textures (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and so all these medieval castles and all this other wonderful stuff and so Mm -hmm. uh, he got really excited and he brought his Betrayal at Crondor for me to sign. And so he's got a video of me sitting in an Italian restaurant where we all uh, ate at after our, our tour and signing uh, the box for Betrayal at Crondor in uh, in um, uh, in Venice, of, of all places.
1: <laughs> That's an awesome story.
2: <laughs> um, but uh, but anyway, so he's he's got this this game that he's been working on for the past couple of years called Call of Seregnar, Seregnar, Damian. I know. I'm, I apologize if I'm getting this wrong, uh, but I do do want to put it out there. But but he's a gigantic fan of of Crondor, and I have had so many other people over the years who have said, you know, I'm building a mod of Skyrim and I'm turning it into Crondor. Hi, I'm working on X and I want to build a new version of Crondor. And of course, uh, I about. Two or three years back, I was learning Amazon Lumberyard, and I even started kind of... I recreated what a puzzle box would look like using a modern game engine, uh, and so it was an actual 3D thing, and then the tumblers moved in 3D and all that that kind of cool Ooh. stuff. Uh, and then I also did some uh, some uh, something else. I did is I hopped into Blender and I started modeling out one of the little tiny villages in Betrayal of called Egly. Um and so uh, so I have uh, so I have some some pictures of, of my notions of what a new three D version of uh, Crondor might might look like. Now, uh, people repeatedly say, "Well, we'll just go out there and, and, and let's let's get the uh, let's let's go and get the license and do this." So there's a couple of complications to that. Uh, number one, uh, Ray, uh, the the license to Mykemia is uh, after. After Dynamics folded, after CR Online folded, the license bounced around and the last word that I had is that the rights to to that universe and, and the things that we created there are sitting somewhere in a locked, you know, file cabinet <sighs> in a disused lavatory at the bottom of the stairs with where of the leopard uh, <laughs> on the door uh, uh, somewhere in
1: the depths of
2: Blizzard Activision.
1: Uh, yeah. And assuming, no, they, assuming they still even have it.
2: Assuming they still have it, but 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 as I understand, is the rights to the universe are locked up there, that nobody there knows where that license is or how to get to it or whatever. And so that's the official story. Uh, now, personally, my notion, personally, my notion is is if Ray really wanted to have another sequel made or whatever. He has lawyers who can twist the arms and make that happen. Particularly since he's got, he's got this. Uh, they've optioned the rights to his books to, a, as a television series. Um, but at the moment, I don't think it really makes a lot of sense for him to go out there and honestly go back and remake a game uh, that was already successful. And you always, whenever you you get into kind of a, of a ship of Theseus issue. With <laughs> mm-hmm. with doing remakes and reboots of things because it's like yes you could go forward and remake Betrayal at Krondor from beginning to finish with you know nicer shinier graphics and uh, full sound effects and full everything but at the end of the day is part of what made the game successful because it was the product of its time and we were cutting edge hot technology at the time we came out. Now, I think that if you were to redo and remake the game now, with all the tech that we have to throw at it, I don't know if it would have the same appeal. I mean, I would like to think that it, it would translate well, but honestly, I just, I don't know. Uh, but I, I think that there's the, the uh, I, I think that sometimes nostalgia can be Damaging or toxic, because you could go ahead and make that remake, and there would probably be tons of people who will come out of the, the the woodwork and said, "This isn't Krono at
1: all." <laughs> is it no yeah it, wouldn't, the, it, it, it would definitely not have the the same feel as well yeah you know, but you know even
0: if you found your floppy disks who's got an ms dos box to play it on i mean
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well that there's there's a, such a thing as dos box and there are instructions yeah. on how you if you have the original yeah. content uh, you can run a uh, the the Betrayal of Crondor Engine has been reverse engineered in like yeah. half a dozen languages. and Yeah,
2: and it's, it's, well, you know, if you go onto GOG.com, you can buy a version of Betrayal at Crondor, and it'll run on a modern machine, no problem. Oh,
0: okay.
2: Um, and so, uh, so GOG is really great, is if you love any of the old retro games, so you can go, hi, GOG, I'm giving you a free spot here. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but I, I don't get any money from it, but, but, uh, but anyway, uh, but you can go out and play lots of old classic games. They have been been designed to run on modern machines, so they've they've gone in and they've tweaked it so so that that you shouldn't have any problems working on on modern machines. But uh, but um, anyway, that that said, uh, the the issue is is still fundamentally going to be is that that there are the hardcore fans who played it back in the day. Uh, who this has a certain memory for them and has certain emotional connections for them that once you change too much stuff, it's not really going to be the same game. The the, the warm and fuzzies they got from that are not going to be the same. It's it's, it's sort of, uh, I guess it's sort of like, you know, going back to kind of the Trek analogy, is that there is, uh, I think that Star Trek Strange New Worlds, works fantastic because they take all the wonderful stuff from the original series and they've adapted it, but they are new-ish characters. (laughs) We still have a mix of some of old characters, but they've been changed to a degree that they're not necessarily recognizable as the same characters. They're new characters wearing the names of our old favorite characters. And I personally love Strange New Worlds. Now, there's some people that are just saying, no, you changed everything. Everything's wrong. Um, but, but realistically speaking, there are certain attitudes that were present at the time of the original series. Uh, they might have seemed progressive at the time, but uh, women were second class citizens <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. during the making of the original series um and uh you know there are a lot of other other instances of things that if you really truly remade the original star trek series uh and did nothing with that other than maybe upgrade the special effects it would be problematic
0: oh absolutely i, I... right it
1: would definitely not pass uh
0: not, we're not past muster with with the uh, the feminists and, the, <laughs> and feminists. And, the, whole, and, and,
1: the, the whole point of, of which, of course, was that Star Trek was uh, lighting the way to an expanded idea of what
0: yeah what you have to grow from from a yeah you know, a, and and you have to come from started a pretty low position in order to grow
1: yeah yeah and and we followed that path and now that we have it all looks antiquated. Yeah, and, and we've we, moved beyond where where they thought we would be in some
2: ways. And I could but you know, I can still look back at those original shows. And again, I have great fondness for us because this was how Idik opened for me. This is where the idea of promoting the idea of of you know using science and rationality and reason and compassion. Uh, uh, for a, uh, to create a better world, and those things are still relevant. But the thing about it is, is that we've learned, you know, now about let's okay, let's go take it to the next step. You know, you you were progressive for your time, and that's that's great, and that's to be
0: lauded. Uh, but we can do better now. Yeah, we don't have to hold it to the standards of today because they didn't have them then. They didn't have them then. And you can't,
2: you can't hold someone responsible for, the, you know, uh, for we honestly didn't know any better. It's like, oh, well, you know, it's like, look, pointing back at somebody, you know, in the Middle Ages. So, ha ha, you, you poor idiots. Why did you die of the bubonic plague? <laughs> you know, you know, all you needed was penicillin. Um, you know Well, that's great. But I didn't have germ theory. Uh,
0: that took a um,
2: while. Uh, <laughs> Uh, And so so, um, you know, we I think that it is Irresponsible to try to judge people out of the times and the places in which they live Uh, You you wish that people had better values or had better understanding of of science or the way the world works Uh, I that's understandable But it's but I think it's important that we always remember the, the frame of reference from which people have come from And the most important thing is you say that's where we were then let's move forward um and um uh so anyway so all that's saying is is of course you know now we've come on this huge digression about genes right (laughs) (laughs) now we're talking about gene roddenberry's um but um i I hope at least that i'm I'm showing that i have some fan cred here
1: (laughs) oh yeah oh definitely Uh, it's it's getting back to Getting back to what you were saying uh, yes. about how Star Trek was the influence of you know it influenced how you approached the uh, material of Kron-Dor material uh, it's it's the attention to the to the whole construct and how important that was that that made that game really work and it all comes down to story yes in the end it all comes down to story
2: yeah well and and uh before you know i I was kind of a weird animal whenever i got in the industry because uh whenever you and i were were first getting in predominantly computer games were being made by programmers who might have had some additional other skills um, and so if you look back at Ken and Roberta Williams, um, you know, they were, were people that were, were, were coders, but they, uh, they learned how to kind of do other sort of jack of all trades because they were not, you didn't have a staff of, of you know, 30 people or 100 people or 1,000 people to help you make your games. It was the two of you sitting in a garage or in your, your den banging these things out. Um, but, uh, the point at which I, I entered the industry I knew something about computer program, uh, programming, but only just a tiny little bit. And that was thanks to Sheedy and Sheedy games.
0: Right. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay.
2: <laughs> because, because I, I had the hots for Ali and so I wanted to be David Lightman. So I went out and I, I bought all the books on programming that were available because I wanted a girlfriend like Ali Sheedy.
0: Mm, programmers <laughs> are hot. <laughs>
2: Um, but uh, but anyway, so I knew a little bit about programming, but I was not a great game programmer, you know, mm-hmm. because uh, to be a great programmer, you really need to be good at math, and math has never really been a great friend of mine. Uh, we at, at the very best were frenemies, <laughs>
1: uh, and, and that and, that is that is true now, but it was not as true then because mm-hmm. uh, we were not dealing with. Uh, um, uh, matrix multiplication and 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 linear algebra and all of that stuff. No, oh, uh, no, you weren't, we didn't. You weren't ha- we really, didn't have to do that.
2: You didn't we, have to we, do all
1: the crazy three D stuff. That we you have we did have that to. Now. We did have to keep you know do housekeeping and arithmetic and talk to databases and
2: yeah and, yeah and, and and you know I I say I, listen, I uh, that was all stuff that I could do. The stuff I just wasn't crazy about it. And I think that, that that to be a really great programmer, you really need to be in love with that. Yeah, um,
1: yeah but, I would say um, that's true.
2: Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I came into it as someone who I'd been interested in film when I was in college, but I didn't have the money to be a film major. So I worked as in, got into radio production because, you know, any idiot knew that all I needed for one semester was one blank reel of magnetic tape, and that'd get me through the whole semester. <laughs> um, yeah. and, um, uh, so I came out of, uh, radio production, uh, had done some radio dramas and we've discussed that in, in other show with you, but, but, um, I also gone through several novel writing classes while I was in junior high ho- or in, in junior college and in college. Uh, and so I, uh, I got into it, uh, came into the industry principally as a writer um, and, and whenever I first walked in the door, that was my only job, was to be a writer. And in those days, someone being brought aboard into a game company who the only hat you wore was writer was extremely rare. In a lot of cases, the programmer was also the writer. Or you might have someone who was wearing two or three hats, of which the writer was it. But, but whenever I first got hired at New World, my only, my only hat was writer. Um
1: that that's impressive. Uh, when I was working at uh, Dreamer's Guild, I led the level design uh, department and um I actually we hired a bunch of people who really weren't that tec- technical, you know, cuz yeah. we were cheap. And I it was my job to hold classes on storytelling mm-hmm. and and how to approach that in uh, the multi-vector Storyline environment of adventure gaming so yeah I was one of those multi-hat guys
2: yeah and uh, and so that was that was the door that I came in and of course at the time there were no classes that you could go to that would teach you anything about interactive storytelling there were no books there were no you couldn't hop on YouTube none of that stuff existed uh, which is why later I wrote a book on it (laughs) Um, uh, but at the time, none of that stuff existed. And so I got kind of thrown into the deep end at New World Computing, where where it was just like, you have to kind of figure out how to do this in a computer format. Um, and it was more complex because, you know, I'd done, uh, obviously I had... I played a role as a dungeon master uh, or a keeper in in Call of Cthulhu, and so I had some experience of what interactive storytelling was like, but it's a lot more different in in, uh, computer gaming because you have to figure out the ultimate bounds of everything the player uh, might want to do, and you have to figure out what options you want to be able to provide to them. Um. So, so I was definitely thrown into the deep end with that. Now, I got a lot of on on the job training at New World, so that by the time I left, uh, and it was only a, a year and a year about year and three quarters later, uh, when I went to Dynamics, I had learned quite a bit about design work. Uh, And, you know, uh, working on systems and doing other things like that. So by the time I got to to Dynamics, uh, I'd learned quite a bit. And then, of course, I was working under John Cutter, who was a consummate designer. He'd worked at at, uh, Cinemaware before and was one of the most brilliant designers I've ever worked with. And I still think he's one of the most brilliant designers I, I know. Uh, but so I learned a great deal about design. So by the time I, I left there, I kind of graduated with my my new hat of, of being a game designer. So I understood level design. I understood systems design. I understood story. Um, but um, but anyway, so uh, but I, I kind of entered this world as uh, as a storyteller. Um, and and so the the nice thing was, is I was fortunate enough, particularly with John, is to be working with somebody who uh, understood how story should fit with a design and could kind of help explain to me what that relationship was and, and how they should work together. Um, so, um, uh, but, but anyway, storytelling, uh, and of course, uh, since that time, I've done a lot of other things. You know, uh, as you kind of said in our introduction, I'm, I'm a filmmaker, I'm an audio drama producer, uh, and, uh, but regardless of what format that I'm working in, whether I'm working on prose in a, in a, in a novel or if I'm working, you know, writing dialogue from a game or, or whatever, at the end of the day, I storyteller is the first part of what I do. And so uh, regardless of what format I'm working in, storytelling is the first thing I'm considering. And everything else comes after that. Uh, which probably makes me not as strong a quote-unquote game designer as some other folks, because they, they might lead with game mechanics first. So well, I figure out the game mechanics first, then I worry about the story. Well, I, I start off with a story, then I figure out what game mechanics let me, me play with that story in an interesting way.
1: Which leads very neatly into something that you just posted a couple of hours ago, just before we got on the air, uh, which is... Um, you are encouraging people to participate in Reading is Fundamental. Tell us a little I, bit about that. Yes.
2: Uh, so, uh, given the fact that we are celebrating, you know, the, the this, this big anniversary, and we've got a lot of attention on us right now because of this anniversary, one of the things that I wanted to do is take this as an, as an opportunity to... I said opportunity a lot there, I'm sorry. Uh, but I, I wanted to... Uh, uh, let people um, think about the fact that Betrayal at Krondor was essentially an interactive novel. And there was probably as much or more uh, text in on screen in that game than in a lot of modern fantasy novels. And so reading was essential to the gameplay of that that title. Unlike other games where you just, you know, Uh, hit the space bar to to skip past the screen, you would have had no idea what was going on if you hadn't read a lot of text (laughs) while playing Betrayal at Condor. And so I wanted to direct people to uh, 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 Riff.org, which is associated with... uh, which is a great organization. They provide... Uh, books to kids that are disadvantaged, uh, and they also sponsor literacy programs across the, uh, the United States. And I, I want people to be thinking about uh, literacy and, edu- uh, and uh, literacy education for kids, and also again the opportunity for some poor kids to get books who might not otherwise have a way to have their own library. I, I think for my my own self the having my own library of books when i was a little kid was just amazing and i could go wherever i wanted to whenever i wanted to and i could just go over and, and you know I, I didn't have tons of books but I, I had my you know star trek logs and <laughs> and some ray bradbury and some other stuff sitting on my, my bookshelf and that had a, a huge influence on my imagination and a, a reading is a skill that you will use for every other profession anything else that you can imagine uh, along the way even if it just boils down to reading the employee handbook uh,
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, well or, that's important too
2: or understanding how to read or, how, understanding what your job contract means but but uh, being literate and understanding what's going on uh, are are really important life skills uh, but further than that is that Unless you have, re- unless there are new readers coming into the world, uh, reading and writing are 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 inter- you know intertwined in such a way you, that you can't separate them. If you don't have readers, you're not going to have writers who are creating your favorite fantasy novels or computer games or movies or comics. Um, and so we need to encourage uh, reading so that that uh, you know it's it's also kind of wrapped up with democracy (laughs) Uh, because your capability to go out and do independent research and, and find out what's going on. You know, there's, there's a reason that they always refer to as the fifth estate. Uh, Mm -hmm. um, um, So I'm, I'm kind of, kind of rambling and floundering here, but but the main point that I just want to make is that, that uh, this is a tremendous organization. And while we are celebrating uh, uh, Betrayal at Krondor's anniversary. Uh, we want to encourage people to go out and donate to, to Riff. Um, we're also going to have a book drive uh, at the actual event uh, that will probably uh, support a local um, uh organization there in lane county slash eugene um i i haven't uh nailed down exactly which organization that will be yet but that's also something that we're going to do so that's going to be sort of a second uh minor charity but but the great thing about uh about riff is the fact that regardless of whether you're able to make it to the the in-person event or whether you're, you're participating in the online uh things that we're going to be doing uh you anybody anywhere can can make that donation and they can be involved with that and so and it I, shouldn't I really... be
1: hard to find a library that needs help <laughs> exactly
2: exactly and and the also the great thing about riff is that there are actually several different ways that you can make donations to them um, you can make a direct donation for just any amount uh, and that that will be kind of split up between Purchasing books to be uh, to be given to, like I said, dis, uh, disadvantaged kids, uh, or to uh, and and also f- to support literacy programs. Another thing they have is that they offer up. There is a Amazon wish list that mm. they have for for Riff, and so you can go through and so here's a list of different books that they uh, they want to buy for kids, and so you can go through and say, I want my you know fifteen dollars or my nine dollars to go to purchasing specifically that book. And so you'll so you'll buy that book, and they're able to. And that that just goes uh, into their pile of stuff so that they're able to distribute. So so that gives you a direct way to decide exactly you know which books that you want to support and how you want to support the organization. So so uh, and but there are also multiple other ways to get involved uh, with the organization. Uh, you can make. Uh, uh, you know, donations through uh, including a Riff in your will. Uh, and so so there, there are all kinds of different options that are available. So if you hit the, the, the RIF.org website, it'll show you the different ways uh, that you
1: can uh, can
2: participate.
0: We'll be sure to publish a link for that. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen,
1: we have been speaking to game designer, filmmaker, and audio producer, and just general storyteller and professional raconteur, Neil Halford. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Event Horizon. Thank you. You have been listening to episode 255 of Sci-Fi.Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for March 4th, 2023 with your hosts, Susan Fox and Gene Turnbow. Our guest this evening has been Neil Halford, game designer and principal writer of the now legendary computer role-playing game Betrayal at Crondor. This episode will air again tomorrow, March 5th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all of the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, Pandora, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and on our own website at sci-fi.radio. Sci-Fi.radio is listener-supported geek culture radio, and the vast majority of our funding comes from listeners just like you. We are pleased asking you to visit patreon.com slash sci-fi radio and donate 5 or $10 a month to help keep the station on the air. It may not seem like a lot, but if everybody does it, together we can accomplish great things. That's patreon.com slash sci-fi radio. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by sci-fi illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2023 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Sci-Fi.radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.